This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. I was talking to Brother Robert on the way into the sanctuary tonight, and uh, he was commenting how many uh, signs of the times are coming into play. And he says, people seem to be so unaware, unaware. And I commented to him, I was thinking of passages, you know, like Matthew 24, 37 through 39. But I commented to Brother Robert that one of the signs of the times is that there'll be many signs of the times and people won't recognize it. And, uh, and uh, Jesus said, uh, ye hypocrites, he said to his generation concerning the first coming, he said, you can discern the face of the sky and tell what the weather's gonna be. How is it that you cannot discern the signs of the time, what God in fulfillment of prophecy is doing in your very midst? Certain books of the Bible go together wonderfully well and form a great bridge between the two testaments, the old and the new. For example, the promised land is to the book of Joshua what the heavenlies are to Ephesians. The ceremonial picture prophecies concerning Jewish worship in Leviticus are gloriously fulfilled in Christ in the book of Hebrews. For example, we read in Hebrews 9, verses 12 through 14, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered it once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth unto the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot unto God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In Leviticus, we read about the priests and the sacrifices. In Hebrews, we see how they're combined in one person who offers himself, the great high priest and the great sacrifice in one. Daniel and Revelation also fit together hand in glove, especially Daniel 7 through 12. At least 71 passages from Daniel are quoted or alluded to in 16 New Testament books. And most of them are in the book of Daniel. Excuse me, most of them are in the book of Revelation, these quotes from, or allusions from Daniel. When you get home, maybe sometime this week, just compare Daniel 7, 23 through 27, about what it says about the revived Roman Empire and the Antichrist, to Revelation 13, 1 and 5 through 7. Daniel 7, 23 through 25, and Revelation 13, 1, 5 through 7. We have said that chapters 1 through 6 are largely history, but you have two great prophetic dreams that Daniel interprets for King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 and 4. But chapters 1 through 6 is largely historical. Chapters 6 
through 7 through 12 are almost entirely prophecy, almost entirely prophetical. And they consist of four great visions, each of which is given to Daniel. In chapter 1, he has a vision of four wild beasts who come out of the stormy Mediterranean Sea. A picture of four great empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, that will dominate world history and by and large oppress God's nation Israel during a period Jesus called the times of the Gentiles, which run from the beginning of the Babylonian captivity to the Battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ, at which time the Lord Jesus, in the words of John Phillips, will bring the times of the Gentiles to a screeching halt. Then in chapter 8, we have the second vision of the ram and the he-goat. In chapter 9, we have the third vision, the 70 weeks prophecy. And then all of chapters 10 through 12 are devoted to the fourth vision. Chapters 10 through 12, Daniel's fourth vision. And our first main division is Daniel's preparation to receive his fourth and final prophetic vision. Daniel's preparation to receive his fourth and final prophetic vision, 10.1 through 11.1. Daniel is praying and mourning and fasting in behalf of the people of Israel for three weeks. The angel of Gabriel is sent by God to him. He arrives 21 days later. And he says, as soon as you began praying, God sent me to give you a positive answer. But he said, on my way, the prince of the power of Persia, a high-ranking evil demonic spirit that Satan put in charge of Persia to influence Persian policy, against God's people and for evil. He opposed Gabriel, so Gabriel couldn't get through. And then another great angel, Michael, came to Gabriel's side and together they won the battle and broke through the resistance. And 21 days later, Gabriel says, I've arrived with the answer and God's gonna bless but it took 21 days. He said, I've got to go and fight with the prince of Persia, and later the prince of Grecia will come. Apparently Satan's going to uh, put a high-ranking evil angel in charge of Grecian affairs with angels under him to try to influence the uh, policy of the third great world empire that will replace Persia down the road uh, and try to influence them against uh, Jewish policy. And so there's a continual invisible warfare behind the scenes in the ongoing uh, affairs of the world and the forward advance of Christ's kingdom. But we are assured that uh, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Behold, I have opened the door 
that no man can shut because thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. In Daniel 10, 11, as Daniel's trying to take in all this, we read, And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Daniel trembled far more by the Tigris River as he was receiving this revelation than he ever did in the den of lions. Then we have prophecies of more immediate, of the, of the more immediate future. Prophecies of the more immediate future, that is over the next several hundred years. Daniel 11, 2 through 35. Daniel is told that after King Cyrus, three Persian kings will arise. And then after them, a fourth, who will be far richer than them all. This is, king is known in secular history as Xerxes, but he's the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. He, uh, it was proverbial how rich he was, and he used his vast riches to build a huge Persian army, I think of over two million people, arming a navy, because he went to attack Greece. And then we read that a great king will arise uh, who will do according to his will. This is Alexander the Great, the uh, first king of the Greek Empire that will replace the Persian Empire. But at the height of his power, he will die, his kingdom will be broken and divided among four of his generals. And uh, parts of the kingdom will even be scattered beyond that. It says it will not be left to his posterity. It wasn't. His generals fought over it, and by the year 301 BC, the dust settled, and there were four main divisions of his empire. On his deathbed, Alexander was asked to whom his empire should go, and he famously replied to the strongest. But Daniel predicts it would not be to his posterity. It wasn't. It went to the four generals. Now, one of the generals, ruled Egypt, south of Israel. You see, all geography in the Bible is given from the vantage point of Israel. Ezekiel 5.5, God says, I have set Jerusalem in the midst of the nations. And so when you read about the king of the north or the kings of the east or the king of the south, it's talking about their geographical location in relation to Israel. There's a very real sense in which Israel is the center of the world in God's dealings. Now, that's true physically. Israel was at the crossroads of the three great continents of ancient civilization, Africa, Europe, and Asia. And uh, God said he placed Jerusalem in the midst of the nations because as he interacted with Israel, it would have a great bearing on all history. There's an interesting verse in uh, Deuteronomy 
uh, chapter 32, 8, that says that God uh, positioned the sons of Adam in terms of their relationship to the land of Israel. And uh, a lot of interesting history we could go into there. In the Hebrew language, it says, I have placed Jerusalem in the navel of the nations. When I was trying to get college students' attention years ago, sometimes it wasn't too easy. I would sometimes tell dumb jokes like, what does a hula hoop, what do you call a hula hoop with a nail in it? You call it a naval destroyer. <laughs> well, just as the navel is the center of the body, um, God said that Jerusalem would be the navel of the nations or in the midst of the nations. It's very central. And um, one of the kings that divides up Alexander's empire was a person named Ptolemy. And in 320, he began ruling Egypt to the south. He and his successors in Daniel 11 are known as the kings of the south. Another powerful general uh, inherited Syria and other territory north of Israel, and he's called the king of the north. And basically, from the early verses of Daniel 11 through verse 20, you have the battles between the king of the north and the king of the south and their varying fortunes, with Israel caught right between the hammer and the anvil and suffering greatly. And then in verses 21 through 35, the eighth king in the succession of the kings of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes, we read about him and how he uh, attacked the Jewish people and uh, destroyed Jewish worship and uh, how God raised up the heroic Maccabees to defend against them and how he would eventually be brought to his just, miserable end. So that's kind of a quick summary of what you have in 11.2 through 35. Now, as it talks about the interrelationship and the wars and the treaties that were broken between the king of the north and the king of the south, and the writer Daniel goes into great detail. History has borne all this out. But it's very involved. And Dr. Coles does an excellent job in his prophetic outlines of going through that history and spelling out the, what king they're talking about and what covenant was broken and who was involved in that political marriage. And uh, he does an excellent job of tracing all that out. Daniel 11, 2 through 35, gives the most detailed account of history in all the Bible. And all this by means of prophecy. Years in advance. It covers events occurring from approximately 529 to 164 BC. This passage, Daniel 11, 2 through 35, bridges prophetically part of the gap between the Old and New Testament. Scholars call that the intertestamental period though some 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Daniel chapter 11, 2 
through 35 fills in a lot of that material. Another great source for that is the Jewish Apocrypha, especially the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and the writings of Josephus. Helps us to get a much better idea of what's happening in those 400 silent years. So accurate is the correspondence between this prophecy in Daniel 11, 2 through 35, and its historical fulfillment, that Porphyry, an early opponent of Christianity, maintained that the account was written after the events. And every card-carrying liberal Old Testament scholar who wants to be in the good graces of his fellow liberal scholars believes that and takes a radically different view from what we believe is the reverent conservative Bible position. And none of them believe that Daniel wrote Daniel and that it was written centuries later by an unknown person who looked back on the history and then pretended that Daniel gave it as a prophecy. But it's what they call prophecy after the event. And I believe it's a very, very unworthy view of God and the Holy Scriptures. And one of the reasons it's so important to give people good conservative Bible college training and not have them study at the feet of liberals. Dr. Coles points out that what is written in the remainder of Daniel's prophecy, chapters 11 and 12, remember chapter 10 is an awesome introduction to the prophecy that will be given in chapters 11 and 12. He says, what is written in the remainder of Daniel's prophecy is called the scripture of truth, Daniel 10.21. We have in chapter 11 one of the most amazing portions of predictive history in the entire Bible. Dr. Cole says, it truly is the scripture of truth. One of the greatest evidences that the Bible's the word of God is fulfilled prophecy. Some of you, dear folks, may remember roughly four or five years ago, uh, I had the honor of teaching an elective class at the Good News Institute on Christian evidences, evidences that prove the fundamental doctrines of our Christian faith. And one week was devoted to fulfilled prophecy. How fulfilled prophecy proves the Bible's claim to be the very word of God. In Isaiah 40 through 48, the God of Israel, through his prophet Isaiah, challenges all the gods of Babylon to a prophecy contest. To a prophecy contest. And he says, let the God that can predict the future and then bring it to pass, let him be God alone. And what he does in chapters 40 through 48 is amazing. The liberals don't like it, and so they don't think Isaiah wrote it. They say it was written afterwards. Again, this prophecy after the event, but, uh, you know, event. Uh, they don't like that either. Although the uniform Jewish tradition has always been that Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote all 66 chapters of Amos. But anyway, Isaiah is writing at a time when the Assyrians are dominant in that part of the world. And Babylon is just the province of Assyria. But he projects about 150 years into the future in chapters 40 through 48. 
and he pictures Israel in Babylonian captivity. Assyria is out of the picture. Babylon is dominant. Israel is languishing in Babylonian captivity and looking for hope. And he holds out hope to her. And he says, you might think that the gods of Babylon are more powerful than I am because Israel was defeated and you went into captivity. But he said, I'm in total control. He said, I predicted long ago that I'd have to send you into captivity because of all your sins. They were crying out to heaven for judgment. But now we're coming to the end of the 70 years. And as I predicted, I'm going to judge Babylon. And to show you how well I can predict the future, I'm going to call by name the very king who's going to defeat Babylon and allow you to return to your homeland and out of state subsidy help you build your temple again. His name is Cyrus. And 150 years before Cyrus rises to power, God says he's called him by name. And this is one of God's great proofs that he is Lord of history and can predict it. And all through Isaiah 40 through 48, you'll have God emphasizing this challenge. For example, Isaiah 42, 8 through 10. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing unto the Lord all the earth and his praise from the ends of the earth. God says, I alone can tell you what's going to happen before it does. And I alone am God and I will not give my glory to the false gods. Well, then we have in 1136 through 1213 prophecies of the distant future. He predicts that there will be a time of great tribulation for Israel. So great that, um, oh, before that, excuse me. I'll, I'll go in a second. Overleaping the centuries, moving over a bridge of unmeasured time, we go from 1135 to 1136 from Antiochus, the king that persecuted the Jews in the second century BC, beyond the church age into the tribulation period, and we're introduced again to Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes is a type or a picture prophecy of the Antichrist. And after describing the exploits of Antiochus, in verse 36, he overleaps the centuries. He moves us over a bridge of unmeasured time that will include the entire church age that has not yet ended and brings on the scene the Antichrist that Antiochus pictured. And it says that he will not regard any traditional religion. He will not worship the God of his fathers. He will not recognize the desire of women. He'll only recognize the God of fortresses and might will be his right. And it talks about his different campaigns, but how he will come to his just, miserable defeat. And then we read in chapter 12 of a time of great tribulation for the Jewish people so bad that there never was a time on earth before it or after it that was as bad. And God will use the guardian angel of the nation of Israel, Michael, to stand up and help them in this desperate time of strife. And then he speaks of two resurrections. 
he says, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who in the tribulation period are true, like the 144,000, and stand for God against all odds and point people to the Lord. It says that they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And Dr. Coles likes to, as many pastors do, compare that to Proverbs 1130, that he that went of souls is wise. And then, Verse 4, and good men differ on how they interpret this, but verse 4 seems to be saying that as we come into the end times when these events that Daniel is predicting, people will search the scriptures to and fro, and their knowledge of prophetic truth, especially the truth of the book of Daniel, will increase, and they'll be in a better position to understand what Daniel was talking about much more clearly than at the time it was written. And Daniel is to seal the prophecy and to carefully preserve it until the time when it'll be better understood. And then it talks about, among other things, that there will be 75 days between the end of the tribulation and the formal beginning of the millennium. And blessed is he that cometh unto that 1335th day. And I'll try to get into that a little more at the end of the class. But that's kind of a quick summary. Now, Daniel 10, 12 through 14, and 20 through 21, going back a little bit and hitting a few highlights. Daniel 10, 12 through 14, and 20, 21 parts the veil between the visible world and the invisible world and reveals the conflict that rages in the unseen spirit world. Notice Daniel 10, 12 through 14. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, this is Gabriel speaking, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remain there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. For yet the vision is for many days. In the verses 20 and 21. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince. Daniel chapter 10 parts the veil between the visible world and the invisible world and reveals the conflict that rages in the unseen spirit world. I've attached a few of my favorite quotes to these notes. Dr. Rod Bell said this, there is an invisible realm below us in a drop of water. It can only be seen through a microscope. There is an invisible realm above us, the world of angels. 
It can only be seen through the realm of revelation. Dr. J. A. Sice, in his excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, he is a partial rapture theorist, so be warned of that. But on the whole, his commentary is great. Uh, it's called The Apocalypse by J.A. Sice. And he's talking about the angelic warfare in the heavens at the midpoint of the tribulation, where Michael and his archangels, well, excuse me, where Michael and the angels of light fight Satan and the angels of darkness and defeat them. It's in this connection that uh, Sice makes these comments, and I think they're excellent comments on the invisible spiritual warfare, and I'd like to just read them to you. Behold then, my friends, what a mysterious battlefield this world is. A contest here is raging, which enlists and engages the mightiest powers that exist. It is the great and far-reaching conflict between good and evil, between truth and falsehood, between right and usurpation, between the kingdom of God and the empire of Satan, between heaven and hell, the great war of a divided universe coming the final issue upon this little world of ours. It is largely silent and invisible. Though raging round us every hour, we perceive so little of it that many doubt its reality. But its very hiddenness is evidence of its awful greatness. The little broils and disputes of a neighborhood are loud and thrust themselves upon every ear. Because it encompasses so much of eternity and pertains to the spiritual potencies under and behind, the outward ongoing of things, this invisible conflict is much greater. The noise of captains, the shouting, the rattle of, I think, I think a little section of that quote got dropped out, I'm sorry. But he's saying when it comes to a, a war that stretches out across the centuries and the ages, um, it far transcends human powers to detect. Sorry, I should have put that part in. The noise of captains, the shouting, the rattle of arms, the boom of artillery marking earthly battles is but the fuss and the dough pertaining to the local and circumscribed exhibits of man's doings. When it comes to a contest stretching through worlds and ages and enlisting the greatest of invisible powers, the reach of human hearing and sight are necessarily far transcendent. And the conflict is all the deeper and more tremendous because of its hiddenness and silence. But whether conscious of it or not, such a mighty strife exists, and we ourselves are all parties to it and combatants in it. I love that quote. And here's a great quote from F.B. Meyer. What a revelation is here in Daniel chapter 10, that probably each heathen country is ruled by some wicked spirit in high places, that the fight is at times almost overpowering even for bright unfallen angels, and that the blessings which are ours are sometimes delayed because of the storms that sweep the ocean through which they come. Gabriel's delay of 21 days. Yes, sir. Can you address Ray Shower's viewpoint with regard to who the angel is? Because he indicates that he thinks it's Christ rather than Gabriel based upon his uh, going back to Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter oh, 2. That's a very good point. That, that's a very good point. Because the description in both places exactly fits Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's a good point. Because of time, 
Brother Davis, I wasn't going to get into that interesting question, but since you wisely brought it up, I'll touch on it if I may. One of the big challenges is when you see the one who confronts Daniel with the revelation early in the chapter, the description matches beautifully the description of the glorified Christ on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 1, 12 through 18. And so it would make people think that it's Christ. And yet, a lot of people struggle with how could it be Christ if he's the one who was sent 21 days earlier, certainly he would not be limited by the prince of the power of Persia in breaking through and bringing the answer. He's far more powerful than angels. And so that's where the struggle is. And uh, I was reading one writer fairly recently who took the position that the one who reveals himself to Daniel early in the chapter is Christ, but after he initially um, uh, reveals himself to him and Daniel gets up on his feet trembling, Gabriel takes over from there and uh, gives the actual uh, rest of the message and on into chapters 10, 11, and 12. So this view is that he was originally confronted by Christ, and, uh, but when he got up on his feet trembling and uh, after he had been in a deep sleep, Gabriel took over from there and talked about his mission of trying to get through in the 21 days and not being able to, and we're back into ordinary angelic warfare now. Uh, it's a challenging passage, but I'm inclined towards that combination view. Because he, he always makes it clear and gives several instances where he shows where Christ allowed Satan to come near him when he tempted him, and a few other things where he also indicates that Christ, um, in his sovereignty, could have allowed him to detain him. Now, again, those are... Yeah, and a very respected commentator who, I'm, who I've read with great profit this past six months, uh, John Wickham, in his commentary on Daniel, takes that view too. Um, and uh, you can see how Christ, for example, in Hebrews chapter uh, 5, beginning with verse 7, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obeyed him. Perhaps, you know, in the sovereignty of God, Christ worked within certain limits and in those limits experienced real warfare with Satan, suffering of the cross even, and, uh, and uh, it would take time to work it through. And so uh, some do maintain that view. Um, I do struggle, though, with the idea that a powerful prince in Satan's army could delay Christ from breaking through uh, when he's the Lord of angels and uh, these were not during the days of his suffering. But, uh, so I've struggled with that, to be honest with you. Still, still looking into that, but you've raised very good points. Thank you. F.B. Meyer says some very good things here. What a revelation is here that probably each heathen country is ruled by some wicked spirit in high places, that the fight is at times almost overpowering, even for bright and fallen angels, 
And the blessings which are ours are sometimes delayed because of the storms that sweep the ocean through which they come. Perhaps by our prayer, we are able to throw an ounce of weight into the scale and turn the battle. <laughs> That's very possibly what Daniel did. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 says, we must put on the whole armor of God because we don't fight merely against flesh and blood, but against all kinds of demonic powers that are behind them. And we must put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand and to put on prayer. I like what the old Puritan commentator John Trapp says. He says, prayer fetcheth Christ into the battle and so is sure a victory. So uh, Paul talks in Ephesians 6 about we're part of this spiritual warfare. And he tells us in 2 Corinthians 10 that the weapons of our warfare are not earthly weapons. They're far more powerful as we cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of Christ and bringeth into captivity every thought to the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Uh, I believe we can attack the enemy like an octopus. Well armed. <laughs> it says that the Antichrist in verse 37, because my time is quickly slipping, I, I wanted to throw this out as a discussion question, but it says that he will not recognize the desire of women. Who is the desire of women? I think it's the Messiah. Jewish women, more than any other women in the history of the world, wanted to have babies. Uh, uh, Rachel said to Jacob, give me a child or I die. And he said angrily, am I in the place of God who will hold from thee the fruit of the womb? But she wanted babies so badly. Women throughout history have long to have babies, but Jewish women particularly. And one of the reasons is that they can have a part in continuing the Hebrew race that will eventually lead to the Messiah's coming uh, who will save the world. Uh, so much we could get into here, but I believe that the uh, desire of women is that they could either be the mother of the desire of all nations or have an important role in leading up to that. So much more we could discuss if we had time there. Another question. Why does God see fit that these three countries in Daniel 11.41 escape out of the Antichrist's plundering hand? Edom, Moab, and the chief of the people of Ammon. As the Antichrist conducts his military campaigns and overpowers countries, these three will escape out of his hand. And I think it's because in the mountains of that area, God will protect his, his Jewish remnant for three and a half years and supernaturally provide for them as we read about the woman escaping to the place of escape in Revelation 12. And uh, one Bible society has uh, years ago put Bibles, Hebrew Bibles, in the ledges of the caves of Petra in Edom, that uh, Rose Rock uh, 
uh, mountain fortress, figuring that would be one of the main places the Jewish refugees would flee from Antichrist, and they wanted them to uh, find out about their Messiah through the Hebrew Bible. So I think that was a really good way of planning ahead. In chapter 12, verse 2, and I wanted to put all these in question and answer form, and now I'm kind of racing to get through, so bear with me. Not the way I like to teach, but... It says in verse 2, And some of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus had this passage in mind in John 5, 28 and 29, when he said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Amen. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, some people who do not take a dispensational approach to the Bible think that there's going to be one general resurrection and judgment at the great white throne. And they think that these two resurrections will happen at the same time. And they say it's supposed to happen in the same hour. The hour is coming, our Lord said. But an hour can be a longer period of time than 60 minutes. Jesus said back in John 5, 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And that's talking about people being spiritually born again all throughout the church age. If he refers to it as that hour. Revelation chapter 20 makes it very clear that there's a thousand years between the resurrection of the just and the unjust. The first resurrection is complete. Before the thousand years, the rest of the dead live not again, the wicked dead, till the thousand years are complete, and then they appear before the great white throne, are judged and cast into hell. And so the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. And the whole Bible is our context. And Revelation 20 makes it very clear that there will be a thousand years between the resurrection unto everlasting life and the resurrection unto shame and everlasting contempt, which the book of Revelation calls the second death. But what a resurrection this will be for God's people. Some of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake to everlasting life. After Sir Walter Raleigh was beheaded in the Tower of London, they found in his Bible these true and striking lines written the night before his death. Even such as time that takes in trust our youth, our joys, our all we have, and pays us but with age and dust, who in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. But from this earth, this grave, this dust, my God shall raise us up, I trust. <laughs> Job cries out in Job, 19, 23, and 24. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. Albert Barnes comments and says, the announcement Job's about to make is worthy of being engraved in the everlasting rock for all time and eternity. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall appear in the latter days upon the earth. And though after my flesh worms destroy this. In the King James, the word body is in italics, meaning it's not in the original. Although it completes the thought. He looks at his body so eaten alive with disease, 
He can scarcely call it a body. Though after my flesh worms destroy this, should I call it a body? Okay, for want of a better word, okay, body. Though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, in his resurrection body, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. There's a first resurrection and a second death. If you're born once, you will die twice. But if you're born twice, you will die once. When I was serving as interim pastor, when I had the privilege of serving as interim pastor at Emmaus Road Baptist Church about a year ago, they had a practice there that when they acknowledged somebody's birthday, they would sing to them the birthday song, and then they would sing, happy birthday to you, only one will not do. Take Christ as your savior, and then you will have two. Oh, there's so much more I want to get to, and my time is just about kaput. Let's look at one more thing. Notice chapter 12, 11, and 12. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the 1,305 and 30 days. You might say, what's that mean? What's it mean there'll be 1,290 days from the time that the daily sacrifice is made to cease and the abomination of desolation set up? And why does it say, blessed is he that cometh unto the 1,335th day? Well, we have a clear starting point. When the sacrifice is made to cease and the abomination of desolation set up, that's when the Antichrist in Daniel 9.27 breaks the seven-year covenant with Israel right in the middle of the week. So we know that the starting point is the midpoint of the tribulation. We also know that the great tribulation, the second three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week is 1260 days. So when you come to the end of 1260 days, you're at the end of the tribulation. But he speaks about there shall be 1,290 days, 30 days beyond the end of the tribulation, something's going to take place. I wish we had a little more time to go into this, but I think what's going to take place is Christ is going to build the millennial temple from which he will reign throughout the millennium. Can't be dogmatic, but I think that's what's going to happen. But then he says, blessed is he that cometh unto the 1335th day. There's going to be another 45 days after the 1290, or 75 days after the end of the tribulation. Subtract 13, 1260 from 1335 and you get 75. And he says, something blessed is going to happen. If a person is alive on earth at that time, he's blessed. What's that mean? Well, I believe there's going to be a 75-day transition period between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennium. Christ will be reigning, and he'll be getting things ready. It's sort of like if a president is elected in early November, there's 70 days plus before he actually takes office in January. And so when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation, he'll be in charge. But I don't believe the millennium will formally begin until 75 days later because Jesus is preparing things for that moment. And I think two big events that will happen in that 75-day period, there are others, will be the judgment of the Jews in the wilderness 
Ezekiel 20, 33 through 38, to determine which Jews who were alive on earth at the end of tribulation after Armageddon knew the Lord and will be able to go into the millennium and which ones will be judged and purged out. And then you have the judgment of the Gentiles in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, to determine among all the Gentiles on earth who made it through the tribulation and Armageddon, which ones are saved and will go into the millennium, which ones will be told, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But God will be getting the world ready for the millennium. But as a result of these two judgments, only those who are saved or remain on earth will wait and be on earth at the time the millennium begins, 75 days later. And I think that ties into our Lord's words to his sheep on the right hand in Matthew 25, 34. He picks up that blessed of Daniel and he says to the sheep on his right hand, come ye blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so his sheep enter the blessed millennial kingdom. And this is the blessed, I believe, that Daniel is talking about. His kingdom is coming. Oh, tell me the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be filled with his wondering glory as waters that cover the sea. I think of that great prophecy in Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Oh, what a day that will be. Glad day. Glad day. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.